Jonathan Clay, J.J. Redick. One of the NBA's all-time three-point marksmen, Redick played 15 years in the NBA, including two with the 76ers. Now as a podcaster and debate show host, he recently opined that 50s and 60s Hall of Famer Bob Cousy used to play against plumbers and firemen. Oh, well, you know, he was being guarded by plumbers and firemen. Up next, plumbers, politics, and plenty with J.J. Reddick on Fresh 24. And down it goes. That's my favorite one that he does. Sixes lock all windows and doors. J.J. Reddick, look at you, your own production company. I mean, really? You're on the dark side now. You're on my side. What's it like to be on my side after being on your side and viewing my side as an athlete? Uh, more stressful than I realized. <laughs> more stressful. You know, it's interesting, Mark, because I, I, I kind of dabble in a lot of different mediums in media within its within uh, media itself and so there's the thing i own which is the podcast and that's control of content and that's control of the creative side uh control of the editing and i love doing that stuff and then i get to call games now which is really the purest form, I think, of what I do because it's about the game and it's it's about the players and what's happening right in front of you. And then there's the studio side and the, the first take side. And that is so much about narratives and debating. And so it at times you're kind of wandering through uh, muddy water when you're doing all three of them and uh it yeah i i think you know i i probably probably made some mistakes why well, I, yeah, I have made some mistakes whether that's on air or in a podcast like it you know but it's it's just for me it's about the uh the closeness to the game and i i love the game of basketball so much i'm coaching my eight-year-old now several days a week on a um, on a team here in New York City. And it's like anything I can do to feel close to the game, <laughs> it's, I, just, I just love. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. You had mentioned the debate shows that you're on. I, I, I can't watch them. Yeah. I, I, I watched a clip of you, and it's you and Mad Dog Russo, and nobody's listening. Or, you know, then Stephen A. is chiming in. It's like all three of you talking at once. I, I think it's endemic of a bigger problem that we have in society where nobody is listening. But how can you deal? Because I know that you're a, you're a discourse guy. How can you deal with that, the, the cacophony of it all, and the fact that everybody's just trying to be heard and nobody's listening? Yeah, I, I think people on first take make good points. Um, 
I try my best. I try to debate and I try to provide takes that I think uh, are backed up with facts or data or sometimes even personal experiences. Um, you know, I think we all have some level of inherent bias to everything because, you know, my viewpoint and my lens has been shaped through my experience as a player in competitive environments, as a teammate in locker rooms, as a curious individual who had relationships with um, my front office and my coaches and my ownership groups. Like, so that has all shaped me. And then, you know, Stephen A has a different viewpoint and that's been shaped by his experience. And so I think that at times it's, it's what makes the show interesting and, and it, it's what makes the show divisive as well. Um, I, I look, I, I, I bring this up only cause you gave me a little hint at what, what's to come. Um, Media in general, this is not a knock on first take, this is not a knock on ESPN, but media in general is at a very weird time. And there's been really two things that have happened. I, if, if I were to sort of look at like flashpoints uh, or inflection points of, of what has happened, uh, the growth of social media, um, that has changed the paradigm about how we talk about things and how we listen. Um, and on top of that, I, I, I think... You, you look back, it seems like it got worse post-2016, right? Post-Trump, the Trump four years, and this is not a knock on, on Trump because I think all of media is guilty of this. It's how we parse together clips. It's how we parse together sound bites. And essentially, my, my belief or my take on this is that we, as media personality members or we as corporations, as channels, uh, we are in some ways rewarded for clicks and oftentimes disingenuous pres presentations of the truth. And I think that creates divisiveness in society, and I think it creates divisiveness in sports. I really do, I really do think it does. You know, I, I look at basketball specifically, and... Because of the nature of the way the game is promoted, the the way the game is marketed, we and and you know the games are separate. When I call games, it's very, it's very different. But we all are guilty of feeding into tropes and feeding into narratives um, that don't benefit the game, don't actually benefit the fans. And that's, to me, when I say stressful, that's the stressful part. Because I, I look at the game and I'm like, how can we do a better job of promoting the game? How can we do a better job of educating people about the game? How do we get more people to fall in love with the game? And I think some of this that we all do is the opposite of that. Uh, I'm going to make one statement and then I'm going to uh, shift more to a political perspective. But um, to me, the news channels nowadays, it's like wrestling where they're scripted. They have a certain perspective and it doesn't matter whether or not it's true. It just has to be entertaining and draw eyeballs. But that's just my perspective. You mentioned Trump. Where are you politically these days? Yeah, I mean, I would I, I always sort of considered myself 
to be a little left of center. I think living through the Trump years in the period of time that I was uh, added my life, um, just on the other side of 30, just having moved to Los Angeles, uh, just having become a father uh, twice, actually, in 14 and 16, I, I think it, 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 it sort of pushed me a little farther left. And then in 2020, the pandemic hmm. happens, and it's like we got a, and that was a, a, an election year, and it's like we got a full double and triple down on disinformation. And so I think I probably moved back towards the center. You know, Bill, Bill, Bill Maher, who, uh, you know, I don't watch his show all the time, but I see clips of him, and he's talking funny, thought provoking. He's, he's all, like, he's all that, right? He's like, you know, I used to be, you know, as far left as you can be, and now I'm right of center, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. it's, so, but I, I, we have these conversations. Um, we had them as players. We had them with coaches. I have them now with coworkers. I have them with friends. And it goes back to this um, reward scenario that, that exists in media. I, by and large, think 80% of the people are rational, kind, good faith actors that maybe disagree on certain topics or certain issues, but that 80% is fairly close to the middle. But that doesn't get... Those viewpoints and those stances and the non-explosiveness of the disagreement, it doesn't get rewarded. And so what gets rewarded is the 10% of the people on the left and the 10% of the people on the right. Um when I go on first take, I'll use a real world example. If I go on first take and we have a segment that we all agree, but kind of disagree, but it's sometimes really good content, you know, really thoughtful, insightful stuff about something within the NBA. I get done with that. And I'm like, okay, uh, that was great. I really enjoyed that. But I guarantee you, that's not going to be rewarded. The clicks are not going to be there. The views are not going to be there. I don't even I don't even know how we're going to package it. What I know gets rewarded with clicks and views is the stuff on either end of the spectrum where there's real divisiveness. And so traditional media now operates that way. I think about when I was growing up, and, and granted, I was sheltered and we didn't have cable for a lot of time, but like I watched the news and I got the news and we don't get the news anymore. We get opinions and takes and what gets rewarded, Mark, what gets rewarded divisiveness. Mm -hmm. It's that's, and I think too, I'll say this one thing. I think we, if you spend any time on social media, and I, I, I probably spend more time on YouTube just because of the nature of our business, specifically with the podcast and time in the comment section. The community there is like very important to me, not saying that our overall community is not, but like we, we get a lot of good conversations within that comment section. Um, you know, I, I like I, I, I value that. I really do. I value that. Um, but I think the bubble that is 
Twitter or the bubble that now has become Instagram, I don't necessarily think that's reflected or reflective of the entire country. And so the things we're getting angry about, I think most people in the world, in the country are just going about living their lives. If you spend enough time on these platforms, oh, you could get worked up. You can hmm. get worked up. I think most people are just trying to go about their lives and be good people and be kind and try to, trying to listen. So I think that all of that all of that divisiveness just gets amplified. I don't think it's it's necessarily reality for the average person. In light of a lot of what you've said and a lot of what we haven't yet said, how do you parent? How do you look at the world as it is and then face your children? Do you filter it? Do you try to explain it away? How do you deal with all that? I f yeah, I filter it. My kids are not age appropriate to be having certain conversations, but they're both um, curious kids. My, my six-year-old specifically, I, we, we say that he's wise beyond his years. His observations about the world at large are always fascinating to me. Um, so we get asked tough questions. And again, I don't want to shelter my kids. I, I want to tell them truths, but sometimes you have to filter that down. I, what, the, the overall general parenting philosophy, I had this when Chelsea was pregnant with Knox, our oldest, and it hasn't changed. I want to raise my kids and have them feel two things. I want them to feel like they are loved, and I want them to love other people. That's it. And so every decision around that is based on those two principles. Because I think if you're teaching your kids kindness, if you're teaching your kids gratitude, if you're teaching your kids to have an open mind and to be inclusive and accepting, I, I, I don't need someone to blast that to them. I don't. Because I'm gonna, just going to show them. I'm going to show them and I'm going to teach them that. And we've been very fortunate. We we have two great kids. That that doesn't mean they don't act like eight and six year olds sometimes, but they're 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 kind and gentle and and loving and inclusive and all that stuff. I, I don't I don't need to when they're twelve years old to give them a training session. I don't you know what I mean? Yeah, so right. Of course. I think you're right. but your natural tendency as a parent always is to protect them from things that are not age appropriate. Think back in your childhood. Somebody once told me your parents were hippies. Is that an an apt description? I don't know how they'd like to be labeled. I I would say I think they like the idea of uh, being part of the counterculture movement. Um, but they look, they were both artists. My dad was a potter. That was his um, his way of making money for our family up until I was about uh, two or three years old. Um, and my older sisters at that time were you know eight or nine. My mom was a sculptor. Uh, she still paints a lot and and. and does a lot of meditative stuff. Um, they grew their own food. Uh, they grew other herbs as well. Um, they really care to disclose what those herbs were. Uh, they they were they were insanely great parents. They were great parents, and but we we yeah we grew up. Uh, you know, I was homeschooled till fifth grade. We we spent a lot of time out in nature in the woods. Um, never had neighbors until I was uh, a rookie in the NBA when I moved into a, a, a community in Orlando. Um, we just kind of always like just lived open, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I 
we all notice now on Twitter when uh, you show that you like something or you read a particular article that's attached to a tweet, uh, you tend to see more and more of that and your, your timeline becomes a lot of what you are interested in. Uh, when you open up Twitter, what are some of the first things that you see? Always NBA content um, because that really is my, pr- my priority outside of my family is uh, I want to just the same way when I was a player, I, I, I want to try to be good at my job. I want to try to maximize uh, my ability at my job. And so, you know, you, you, you kind of can use NBA Twitter to inform you about some of the narratives or debates happening. I find that there's some very thoughtful accounts that I follow that post really good stuff on uh, different teams or advanced stats that, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on NBA.com, which uses uh, NBA advanced stats or uses some synergy data. I also uh, got introduced to the people at Second Spectrum, so I use Second Spectrum a lot. So sometimes some Twitter accounts I follow, I might just come across something and say, oh my God, they just posted something about Bobby Portis. I'm having Bobby Portis on the podcast next week. Guess what? I can use that. So it's a lot of that. some of the, you know, I, I think we all probably followed polit- different political accounts or news accounts during uh, COVID and during the Trump presidency. And so I, I still have some of that, but it's generally those two things. Yeah. I don't get, I don't have a lot of LSD comment on or <laughs> LSD content on my Twitter feed. <laughs> uh, we, we've kind of gone back to basketball here. So uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your career. Uh, you were with a Clippers team that a lot of people thought was just every year you just said Clippers in the finals, Clippers in the finals, and, and, and it never happened. Uh, why didn't it? Yeah, you know, I think some of it was our own doing. Some of it was um, bad luck. Some of it was the Warriors becoming unbeatable. <laughs> mm. You know, I, I go back to 14 and 15 were, were probably our best opportunities. Um, and game five in Oklahoma city, we're up 11 with four ish minutes to go. We lose that game. Um, didn't really do a good job of executing or taking care of the ball down the stretch. Uh, I, you know, then we'd up losing game six, the Houston series. Um, thought we kind of let game five just go cause we were coming back to LA for six and we're up 19 in the third, and you know, Josh hit Josh Smith hit hits three step back threes. Uh, Corey <laughs> Brewer hits a couple corner three. Like they got hot. They played the whole quarter without James Harden, who was the guy that we had scouted and the guy who would, we'd built the ga- a game plan around. And then you have to go at that time. We were coming off a seven game series. I just remember going to that Houston series and uh, that that game seven. And Blake and I would talk would talk during the game and just be like. I've never been this tired in my life. I mean, the amount mm. of energy that we had to expend in that San Antonio series and then to follow that up. Chris, of course, missed game one and two in Houston uh, because of a hamstring injury. Go to 16. We're in the first round. We're up in the series. Uh, we win our first two games at home. And then, uh, you know, it, Chris breaks his hand. Uh, Blake tears his quad tendon within the span of 10 minutes in the second half. We go on to lose that series. Next year, Blake, in the first round, Blake tears uh, the planter plate in his big toe. Uh, we go on to lose that series in seven games. Um, and not that we would have beat the Warriors in 15, 16, or 17, but 
I think at 15, it would have been a very competitive series. Um, I'm not sure in 16. I don't think we would have in 17. I don't think anybody was beating them in 17 with, with Kevin yeah, right. Durant. Right. Uh, but, you know, some of it was just luck and some of it was uh, mental errors. Um, and I and I look back and, you know, I I, I still think about those two years. I, I, I think about that, uh, the first two, you know, my two years in Philly. I think about a couple years in Orlando in 2009, 2010, where, you know, you're not the clear favorite, but you got a chance. You got a chance to at least get to the NBA Finals. And, uh, yeah, you. I think about more about the missed opportunities than I think about, you know, playing in the Finals or, or getting the Conference Finals. So let's talk about a particular shot that didn't miss but went went in. May 12, 2019, Game 7 at Toronto. The Kawhi Leonard shot ends the Sixers' season. What if... That shot had not gone in. A good friend of mine who was a media member was at that game, and he swears that had the game gone into overtime, he said Toronto was gassed and the Sixers would have won and advanced to the conference finals. Um, what are What is your take if that shot had not gone in? Would the Sixers have won? Would they have advanced? And to add more to that, would you have stayed with the team because you went on to sign with New Orleans the following season? Well, I would have I would have stayed with the team, even if we, ha- you know, I wanted to stay with the team. That was that was my mindset going into free agency that year. First of all, we would have, we would have had to win overtime. Um, we had played, I think we were either three and one or two and two against the Bucks. I can't remember off the top of my head. I know we had lost to them though, uh, late in the regular season at home. Um, I think about you know for me individually I think because of the way that the Bucks guarded me I would have had a good series that that series um you know they they played Brook in that heavy drop and so all those DHOs with Ben or with with uh with Joel I got great looks um I also think defensively it was a better matchup series for me um you know and so I think the thought process going into that free agency was like, we got to beat the Raptors, which was weird because we all knew Kawhi was leaving. And so they, they sign Al and they sign Josh Horford or, you know, we got to beat the Celtics potentially because they got big wings. And so like, I think that hurt me in free agency, which is fine. I, you know, they, they went in opposite direction. I have no ill will towards anyone about that. Mm-hmm. Um, teams have to make decisions. Players have to make decisions. But do um, you think, let me just stop you. Uh, do you yeah. think things would have been different Yes. The Sixers. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. They would, that's, would, was, they have yeah. kept, would they have kept everyone together and not yeah. let Jimmy Butler go and all of that? Yeah, I, I think I think there's a, a more likely outcome where we, we run it back, essentially, um, even if we had just made the conference finals. I think that's more more likely outcome that we run it back. But you never know. Uh, you never know. There, look, the thing about our sport is that it's not played on paper. It's played on the court. It's played in locker rooms. Uh, the interpersonal stuff is so important, and the dynamic between different players is so important. So potentially, yeah, they would have run it back, but potentially they wouldn't have. I don't know. I think if we win a championship, they have no choice but to run it back. Um, and, you know, again, you're talking about a year where Clay gets hurt, Kevin Durant gets hurt, so maybe they don't get hurt, maybe we lose. I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, uh, in a remaining few minutes here, I do want to talk about my squad, the Sixers, Joel Embiid and uh, his MVP status once again. But I did want to touch on a former teammate of yours, Ben Simmons, who you had on your podcast. And uh, while I, I, I don't think that Ben is blameless for any of the issues that he has encountered, I do think that he has gotten a raw deal as it relates to mental health because I think it's stigmatized. I think if you have a broken arm, people can see that and they see those limitations, but they don't perceive the limitations of mental health. Uh, after having interviewed him and, and being in locker rooms with him, what is your take on Ben Simmons? Yeah, I, I, I generally feel very bad for him because it's it's obvious when you watch him on the court that he's not the same player that he was with the 76ers. And... The, you know, the aggression, the shot creation, just playing free. We just haven't seen that really at any point in time with Brooklyn, or at least for a, more than a one or two game stretch. It just hasn't been there. He's also got had some physical issues and potentially maybe those things are aligned, right? I, I know as an athlete, when I had physical issues, there were mental hurdles that I had to, to climb. Uh, you come back from a hamstring injury, you come back from a back injury, whatever it may be. There's mental hurdles to climb, and so if you're if you're constantly feeling banged up, that can attribute to it. But clearly, you're talking about a guy that made it All NBA team, back to back All Star games, All Defensive teams. Something long term has affected him from that Atlanta series, and so I, you know, as a as a friend, as someone who I had a lot of success with playing with, I just. It, I, I feel for him. I feel for him. And I, I, I agree. Like, and I think Ben would say this. Like, he's not blameless. No, like, we're, we're, not, we're not looking for a charity case here. Like, Ben's not blameless. I, none, of, none of us are ever blameless in all of this. All of us could have done something a little better. Um, but as someone who has had my own mental health struggles at times, like, I, I genuinely feel for him. The 76ers, will they at least get past the second round of the playoffs? So, I think this team is very good. The combination of Joel Embiid and Harden in that pick and roll is very hard to defend. You don't want you have to guard Joel with a bigger player. So switching onto James and ISO, switching a smaller player onto Embiid. Joel, I don't love that. I don't love a blitz either because Joel's one of the bigs and there's a handful of them that can make so many plays out of that short, short roll, whether it's scoring or passing. All right, so you're going to give him a steady diet of drop coverage. The last two games have shown just how dangerous they are if you play a steady diet of drop coverage. And specifically with James, the way he's playing this year uh, – take away the first couple weeks of the season but the way he's played this year to me is the perfect complement to Joel and I think in some ways James has elevated Joel I, I said this on the podcast earlier this week about Jalen Brunson and, and Julius Randle Jalen Brunson has elevated Julius Randle's play and that partnership the two of them is very efficient in pick and roll and so yeah then you start thinking about matchups you go to uh, Milwaukee, potentially. 
uh, in the second round. You go to Boston potentially in the second round. It's likely going to be one of those two teams in the second round. Uh, both those teams are excellent. So I think about will they get out of the second round? I don't know. Can they? Yes, they absolutely can. Um, if who's your sitting, MVP? Who's your MVP? Sitting, uh, right now, I'll get to that yeah. in a second. I would just say All one right. thing about the Eastern Conference: if you're yep. getting, if you're getting to the finals from the Eastern Conference, and you end up with that two and three seed, that essentially means you're, you're going to have a a decently hard round if you're the three seed. Uh, potentially Miami Heat sitting in that spot. Then you've got to beat one of Milwaukee or Boston, and then you've probably got to beat one of Milwaukee or Boston. So to me, the easier route is whoever gets the first seed because I do think that second round for whoever is in those two, three spots will take its toll. That's going to be a very hard-fought series. MVP, um, still time to still time to go. I've got three guys right now that are in the running, and that's Jokic, Giannis, and, and Joel. I, I think that's clear. If I had to say today, and look, I, I'm biased towards Joel, but I have to be realistic. I think to, right today – it's between Giannis and Jokic, and Joel is just outside of that. Uh, but no one else for me in the is is really in that fourth spot. It's it's between those three guys. Well, Jonathan Clay Reddick, uh, just a couple of parting shots here as we say goodbye. Uh, old man and the three. I laugh at old man. You're only 38. I have t-shirts older than you. That's the first thing. And I do predict that 40 years from now, no one will say that JJ Reddick. He played against plumbers and firemen. <laughs> JJ, thank you. Yeah, I may be, maybe, I may but... be the plumber of my generation. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> you can't compare eras, by the way. Let me just say that. JJ, I 100% gracious. agree with you. I 100% oh, agree oh, okay, fine. All right. Yes, well, listen, we, could talk, we could talk more. We'll Have talk me eras on, po- on the next time. Yeah, I love you that. You got it, brother. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. you, Mark. Thank you for having yeah, me on. You got it.